And greetings, brethren, all around the world. Those of you who will be watching this in Australia, I think uh, in Tasmania, there will be people over in Norway and England and Ireland, and those of you up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and over in Toronto and other areas over Canada, and all around the United States and in some other countries that I haven't mentioned, like the Philippines, for example, on the Day of Atonement. This feels very strange to me because I am doing this sit-down chat combination sermon Bible study from my own study here uh, near Tyler in Texas, and I ate breakfast this morning. But I assure you that when atonement is here and I'm standing up to do a live sermon before our brethren here in Tyler, I'll be fasting just like all of you are today. Will you turn to Leviticus 23? Let's read the scriptures that tell us about the Day of Atonement, and then we'll get into some of the typology and some of the real symbolism and significance of this very solemn day called Yom Kippur in the Hebrew. Leviticus 23, 27 to 32, also on the tenth day of this seventh month, and that's exactly where we are now, according to the solunar calendar that God has given and according to the new moons and a progression through the seasons of the months as God established them, beginning with the Jewish civil year, and then, of course, the Jewish sacred year. The sacred year begins with, as you know, Abib, and the civil year begins in a fall. The sacred year, of course, counts one through the months, and this is the seventh month of the sacred year and the tenth day of that month. By the time we get five days from now, to the 15th, we will be exactly at the middle of the month, and when you look out there as the Feast of Tabernacles begins, you will see a huge full moon. It is going toward full now. It will be another five days before it's a full moon. So on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. Have you looked it up in a dictionary? Believe it or not, it does mean at one meant. It means reconciliation. It means forgiveness. It means to bring back, to redeem, to make at one. As opposed to at odds, it means to be together, to be completely reconciled. The world needs reconciliation between religions, between all the various political institutions, between every ethnic and racial group, among all the languages, because the things that divide and that cause people to be at odds with each other from the time of the Tower of Babel when God confounded the language in order to cause people to be distributed over the earth and so they were trying to get together and one worldism and one government was in vogue then and he said this they begin to do and now unless I were to divide and confuse their tongues and scatter them nothing would be restrained from them which they have essayed or have wanted to do. And the reason that man has taken up until this time to enter the jet and the space age and to create mass weapons of destruction such as atomic and hydrogen bombs, biological and chemical weapons and the like, is because much of this research and development has gone on in many different countries independent of others and in, of course, all of the various spying systems by which various nations intent on destroying or in some way or another competing with one another have tried to steal the secrets of others. But think of complete and total cooperation between all of the expertise and the knowledge and wisdom, the inventiveness, the ingenuity, the intelligence, the brilliance of some of the scientists who have gone into those things, where we would have been decades, centuries ago, had not God deliberately scattered the people abroad on the face of the earth. Actually, man would have reached the point of being capable of complete self-destruction, perhaps within a very short time, maybe only a very few thousand years, a couple of thousand years or so, maybe less, if they had all been cooperating together. Nothing is clearer than the division between and among nations today, North and South Korea, in the Balkans, where strife that goes all the way back to the time when Islam got all the way to the gates of Vienna and where generations of people in those nations over there have been brought up under the fundamental beliefs of either Shia or Sunni Muslim thought and the Koran, and the difference between Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodoxy, the so-called iconoclastic controversy, the big argument over whether or not you could worship before raised icons or whether the whole statue was there to represent Mary and the Jesus child or the Christ child. Look at Northern Ireland. Look at Protestants and Catholics going at it 
trying to do what they're talking about, you know, affect a peace process. But if this is a peace process, as I've said before, what would a war process be like? Very recently, President Clinton was over there. You all know about that, and I won't deviate into that on this holy day as to whether or not he's even going to be in office very much longer. But he was over there to, again, try to promote the process of peace in Northern Ireland after the little town of Omagh had almost been gutted by a huge bomb that killed many people and injured many hundreds more. And this is happening all over the world. We're very well aware, all of you are aware, not only through World Watch, but your own sources of news where you live and the headlines that you see every single day about the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania, about the crash of the Swiss Air aircraft, about all the tragedies in this world today. But more than that, you're aware of the conflicts, of the potential of the communists taking over again in the Soviet, or the uh, Russia, the former Soviet Union. And who wants to contemplate a civil war inside a nation that has in its hands tens of thousands, some say up to 30,000 nuclear weapons? That's just impossible to even contemplate. Here we are in a world totally at odds with God, and a world totally divided against itself? And is there any division any more poignant and any more agonizing to many of us in God's church and God's work than the division among the people of God in the various splinter groups and the various religions, over maybe 100 of them is what people have told me, that has sprung up as the worldwide church imploded? Like the Soviet Union imploded, and the 15 former Soviet Socialist Republics all became separate nations, and nations that most people had never heard of before, like uh, Georgia and uh, Belarus and so on, sprung up to become separate independent nations with their own nuclear arms. So it is that the church imploded, and there are all kinds of different organizations, and they are worlds apart. There's no reason for them to be apart when you stop to think about it. Do they all believe in the one divine family of God, Elohim? Yes. Do they believe the Bible? Yes. Do they keep the weekly Sabbath? Yes. Do they believe in the plan and the purpose of God? Yes. Do they believe in the seasonal progression of that plan as revealed in the holy days? Yes. Do they believe in the spirit in man as opposed to the immortality of the soul? Yes. They believe dozens of fundamental doctrines identically and with the exception of a few little things here and there, like maybe a place of safety, and that is not really important enough to divide anybody, because after all, if God is going to take you to a place of safety, what do you got to say about it? He says it's time to go, and he grabs you, and there you go, and you're going through the air, and suddenly you're in Petra. Wonderful. Thank you very much. You didn't expect it, but there you are. It's not going to happen that way, but if those who believe that they can be protected where they are, and that in fact the Bible does say that God's people are going to be subject to attacks from Satan the devil, and that it says that Satan is come down having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time, and it says in the 13th chapter of Revelation that Satan the devil made war against the saints and, quote, overcame them, end of quote, what difference does it make to our task before us today that people may hold in their minds a concept about something which may or may not happen in the future during the days of the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs, and the day of the Lord. It is not something which should divide God's people. Now let's contemplate these things as we go through the meaning of the day of at one meant. Because eventually, with what this day depicts, the entire world is going to be at one with God. And there won't be another Catholic or a Protestant or a fundamentalist Islamic Shia. There won't be any Buddhists or Shintoists or Taoists or Confucianists or Animists or any other of these religions, whether they be utterly heathen and pagan, or certainly there won't be any more Satanists. And furthermore, there will not be any more divisions among God's people. They will all be together. There is so much involved in the Day of Atonement and what it means, what it presages to the entirety of the world and certainly to God's people. So there shall be a Day of Atonement, a Day of at one a Day of Togetherness, a Day of Healing, a Day of Reconciliation. 
It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls. The only day that is called a fast day, as you see in Acts 27, 9. After the fast was passed, and sailing was therefore dangerous, because of what they called the Eurocyclodon, in other words, a very a storm, a vast storm, and the reason it was called a cyclodon was merely the Greek expression for like a hurricane that would come out of the Greek islands and sweep across the eastern Mediterranean. And sailing was dangerous in the fall, in the autumn. And that's why Luke, as the chronologer, wrote what he did about the time in which the Apostle Paul sh uh, suffered the shipwreck and was cast adrift ashore on the island of Malta. So the Day of Atonement is a fast day, a day when we are to afflict our souls by fasting. And it said, of course, the old Leviticus uh, statement, because the Le Levitical priesthood was still in vogue, and they were offering burnt offerings, an offering made by fire unto the Eternal. And you shall do no work in that same day. It is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Eternal your God. Whatsoever soul it shall be that will not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people." And whatsoever soul it be, and there the word soul, nephesh, is used as whatsoever person, whatsoever individual, as I'm sure you have learned. And Bullinger's Companion Bible appendix on that term, nephesh, has all those various meanings, that one, that thing, he, she, it, they, that, whatever, an object, it can be a life, it can be a, an animal, a beast, it can be a person, a personality, it can be any number of persons. Whatsoever individual it be, whatsoever person it be, that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. There again, soul used as something which can be destroyed. The idea of the immortality of the soul is nowhere taught in the Bible, as you well know. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, it says in Ezekiel 18.4 and Ezekiel 18.20. And here it says, a soul can be destroyed. Well, that's because it's talking about a human individual. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls, your bodies, your lives, in the ninth day of the month at even, so last evening, beginning in the evening at sunset, from even until, even until even, and even is at sunset today, wherever you are, whether in Australia or up in Vancouver, B.C., you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now, I looked it up again in the dictionary as I was telling you. It does mean this, making up for something, giving satisfaction for a loss, a wrong or an injury. It means reconciliation or harmony. And then it gives the Old English, and it says it is at-one-ment. So it is really three words, at-one-ment, and we call it atonement. In Psalm 119.67, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And he talks about fasting. Exodus 34:28. Moses on Mount Sinai, quote, ate neither food nor water. He was there with the Eternal forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The only kind of a fast that the Bible talks about is a fast where you do not eat food or drink water. No liquids, no foodstuffs go down into the stomach at all. I remember years ago that people would even joke about they knew how to beat the uh, Day of Atonement. They would say, all you got to do is leave your mouth open in the shower and swallow a few, and you can't help it. Well, sure you can, just like you can help it if you swallow while you're brushing your teeth. But anyway, there were people that were trying to find ways to get around it. And of course, some people hating to fast because they just can't stand the idea of doing their bodies any harm at all. It doesn't do you harm, it does you good. But uh, they just don't want to go without the satisfaction of appetite for even 24 hours, would try to figure every way they could that a fast was just, well, foodstuffs. And you're not really, you are fasting if you just drink water, let's say, or have coffee in the morning and a little bit of water through the day. That's not right. That's not, a, that's not what the Bible plainly says. The Bible plainly describes fasting as no food or water, as it does in the case of the book of Jonah where Nineveh repented after the preaching of Jonah, and the king issued a decree that neither man, woman, or child, nor the beasts or the animals could either eat any kind of food or fodder or drink water for 24 hours. In 1 Kings 19.8, Elijah fasted 40 days and 40 nights, eating neither food nor water. And in Matthew 4 and verse 2, Speaking of Christ's fast, just before he was met by the tempter, as he is called. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. 
And that word means really hungry. And of course, the average one of us could not live beyond about a week, ten days, at the most maybe a couple of weeks. And we would simply die. We would die maybe quicker than that with no water whatsoever through dehydration. But we just could not handle it for 40 days and 40 nights. That shows the kind of physical strength and it shows the mental tranquility and it shows the power of God's Holy Spirit to give them the peace of mind to know that they could do that. Jesus said this about fasting in Matthew 6, 6, uh, 18, 6 to 18. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, notice he said when you fast, not if you fast. Now, there's only one commanded fast day that is anywhere mentioned in the Bible. But Jesus said, when you fast. And when he told the disciples who were amazed because they had attempted to cast out a, a demon, out of a demon-possessed person, and the parents brought the boy, the child, to Jesus, and he cast him out, and they said, why couldn't we do it? And he said, this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. So Jesus was close to God, of course, closer to God than any other human being who has ever walked this earth, and he fasted fairly often. I doubt that he fasted one day a week on any kind of a set schedule, but every now and then, in order to stay very, very close to God, to be aware of his temporality, of his human physical existence for a very short time on this earth, to be aware of the spiritual body and the spirit, uh, spirit body, the spiritual future that was awaiting him to be ascended back up to heaven to the right hand of the Father on high, he drew closer to God through fasting and prolonged fasting when he knew that he had to meet Satan the devil and overcome him to disqualify Satan as the so-called Lord of the dead. And prior to that time, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, since it took the very life of God in human form to die for the sins of the world and to descend into the grave and then the power of God's Holy Spirit to resurrect him again, to conquer death, to overcome death so that all can be resurrected. Satan the devil's hold over the dead had not yet been broken. And Satan the devil is the god of this world had not yet been completely disqualified. So Christ came to disqualify Satan the devil, to break his hold on the dead, and to conquer the grave, among many other things. So he had to fast for 40 days and 40 nights because he knew that the mental anguish and the appealing of Satan the devil to the physical appetites at a time when he was so starving. You know, don't ever go grocery shopping. Take it from me because I've made this mistake. Don't ever go to the supermarket and go grocery stopping, uh, shopping when you're really, really hungry. Not a good time to shop because you will be tempted to do a little impulse buying. Something will look good to you, and you'll get that, and you'll buy it, and you don't really need it, and you probably shouldn't afford it. Wait until after your meal. Wait until you're pretty full, and you've got no problem with it. Don't go grocery shopping, for example, the first thing you do this evening before you go to dinner on Day of Atonement. You'll probably buy a lot of things you shouldn't be buying. So Jesus knew about these appetites, of course, because he suffered every temptation and every point, as we do, and he knew that he had to really be ready for Satan the devil's wiles and temptations. He was called the tempter when he appeared to Jesus Christ and took him up to the top of Mount Hermon, up to the temple, tried to get him to turn the stones into bread, tried to get him to kill himself and perverted scripture, twisted it out of all recognition. So Jesus Christ fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He tells us if we fast for one day or part of a day or two days in a row, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. So people say, oh, he's fasting. Isn't he righteous? And that would be exactly why some people do it. They want to look righteous to other people, which is self-righteousness and absolutely vain. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Their reward is whatever little bit of of uh, ego massage, whatever little bit of self-satisfaction they get out of appearing to be righteous to other people. And that's the only reward they receive. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. That's not talking about a religious ceremony. It's talking about using a little bit of oil, as they did in those days, or as we do nearly always today, something else, some other thing, maybe even a little bit of gel or hairspray or whatever. Anoint your head and wash your face. 
You don't go all bedraggled like you just got out of bed. You don't deliberately make yourself look all sad and down, downcast and, and lowly. That you appear not unto men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. So fasting is going without food and water, and it is a deliberate affliction of our souls, our physical beings for that period of time in order to spend our time in thinking about the Word of God, thinking about our own spiritual condition, thinking about our need to draw closer to God, to put His laws, His ways, His Word deeper into our consciousness, to contemplate the kingdom of God, our own physical mortality, that if we continue to fast as we are doing today, right on through for 20, 30, 40 days, we would be dead. And that we must depend upon the air, the water, and the food from this ecosphere in which we live as human creatures to survive or we simply would be dead. So God wants us to think about that. He wants us to think about spiritual things, about the kingdom of God, about the need for reconciliation, the need for oneness and togetherness, the need for complete atonement being at one with God. Now go to Leviticus, the 16th chapter, and you know this is where the that ugly word azazel, it, it, it's quite an ugly word in Hebrew, but believe it or not, it is a curse word in Israel, modern Israel today. They, uh, they will say lazazel with the L in front of it, and it means the devil, and, and they say like a lot of Americans might, or other people in other English-speaking countries, Oh, the devil with it, or the devil you say, or the devil made you do it, or whatever. They use the devil in, in coarse vulgarities. And so that very word is used on the street in Israel, believe it or not. In the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus is what they were to do on the Day of Atonement. Aaron, verse 6, shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself to acknowledge that even as the priest, the high priest in this case, he also was not without sin, and for his house, for his family. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats. It didn't matter. They didn't single one out for one purpose and one for another. They were both to be young kids. They were both to be absolutely without blemish. One lot for the Eternal and the other lot for, it says, the scapegoat. Now, the word scapegoat is the one that is the Hebrew word azazel, if that is the way they pronounce it. And it really does mean a, a removal or a separate or a sent away goat. A sent goat, a removal goat, a, a departure, a sent away goat. It does not really mean scapegoat. Because the common interpretation of the word scapegoat is the fall guy, the patsy, the, the guy who got set up, who is allegedly suffering somebody else's guilt and wrongdoing. And this is not right, because God places guilt where guilt belongs. So the word scapegoat in the English language is absolutely an error, and it should merely read for the goat of removal or the goat of sending away or the goat of departure or the rough goat that was to go into the wilderness. So notice that the lot would fall on one goat which is for the eternal. Then another lot falls on another goat which obviously is not for the eternal. There are some who began to come to the opinion, and to me it is absolutely blasphemous beyond my ability to even portray to you, that the Azazel goat typified Christ. Now, what they would be trying to say by this is that in all of the seasonal progression of God's annual holy days of the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, the Day of Pentecost, the Day of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Great White Throne Judgment Day, or the last great day, that Satan the devil appears nowhere in any of the typology. And that would be utterly ridiculous, because from the very word go, in the 14th chapter of Isaiah, we might have time to go through that in a few minutes, and Ezekiel 28, as well as clear back in John, the first chapter, and in what Jesus said about seeing Satan as lightning fall from heaven, 
Satan the devil was there from the very beginning to try to wreck and to ruin God's creation. And we'll get into that a little later. Satan the devil, with all of his ego and vanity, wanted to supersede God, wanted God's job and God's office, wanted God's glory, wanted his throne, wanted to take over from him, wanted to oust God and to be God in place of God. And that got deeply into Satan's mind, and he began to inflict, the, to influence the demons that were under him, the righteous angels, they originally were, one-third of them, and they became just as twisted and perverted and hateful in their outlook as Satan the devil was. We'll get to that just a little bit later on. So one is for the eternal, and the other is for the Azazel, and not for the eternal. And this is a symbol of Satan the devil, not of Jesus Christ. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the eternal's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. And that goat was to be killed, and its blood was to be poured into a basin. It was to be sprinkled on the book, and sprinkled on the people, and on the altar. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel shall be presented alive before the eternal to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat, Azazel, again, into the wilderness." And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering. Now, so far we read of what is to be done. Now it is how to do it. I won't read all of that, but it says in verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, which was for Aaron and his family, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place. Once a year, as it says in Hebrews 8 and 9, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, inside the veil, that is the little compartment beyond the holy place where the showbread and the various daily offerings were, and to go into the Holy of Holies, which is a symbol of entering into the very throne room of God himself in heaven, to make an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And when Christ sat down at the right hand of his Father on high, after having died for all the sins of the world, it was to make an atonement for all of the entirety of mankind. And you see that typology in those rich, meaningful chapters of Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9 that talk about this very event, how only once a year the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. He shall go out under the altar that is before the eternal and make an atonement for it, and take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. He shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his fingers seven times, and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. It was a bloody ceremony. The priest would actually take a basin of blood. The animals were dying. They were gasping out their last. Their, their lungs began to stop, of course. The blood was poured out. They sprinkle it on the book. They sprinkle it on the horns around the altar. They sprinkle it on the people. So the people had got drops of blood on them and on their garments. And it was a cleansing by blood. Now, we would be tempted to think that, you know, that, that is not cleansing. That is getting dirty because you've got blood all over you. The first thing you want to do when you've got blood on something or spilled on something or on yourself, you want to wash it off. This drove home the lesson that sin costs blood and that that is the penalty, that the wages of sin is death. And it really did emphasize that lesson. Now, thank God we don't have to do that today. We only have to fast and to read of what they did then, to understand the typology, to acknowledge it, to acknowledge our sins, to go before God in deep contrition and repentance and ask for His forgiveness and to make us at one with Him and at one with each other, at one with all of our beloved brethren, no matter who they are and what different name or initial that they put after their name, and at one especially, of course, with God Almighty in heaven above. When he has made an end, verse 20, of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat." And he shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. 
and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat. And that's the meaning of that term, Azazel, the goat that is let go, the goat, the goat, goat that was sent in the wilderness. Now, you and I had a partner in sin. This is deep, it is profound, it is important. Oftentimes, when human beings rise up in judgment against other human beings, they forget that fact. God does not. This day symbolizes the fact that there is the party of the first part and the party of the second part involved in sin, and that Satan the devil is the first great sinner, the first great egoist, the first great vain, conceited, uh, every bit of nature that I say human nature is a mixture of good and evil, and mostly it is evil, and it has vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. Well, the first one guilty of all of those various uh, sinful attributes of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed was Satan the devil. He was vain beyond belief. He was jealous of God to the point that he was just seething with it. He lusted after God's throne. And, of course, he was so greedy, he just had to have it all. So his God became the lust and the greed and what he wanted to get to take away from God. Now, here, God has already wiped out the sins of Israel. The blood sacrifice has been accomplished. The blood has been sprinkled. The atonement has been made for Aaron, who is a human, even though he's a priest, and he had to make an atonement for himself by a, an elaborate ritual and for his household. God has forgiven him. Now he makes an atonement for all the house of Israel. God has forgiven them. But now here are the sins of Israel that God has forgiven. God has wiped them off of the slate. God will never remember them anymore. He says, as far as the east is removed from the west, so far will he remove our sins from us. And as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward us that have repented and asked him to forgive us. But yet here is sin that is still there, seemingly having a life of its own to be put on the head of this goat, which is then sent into the wilderness. Satan, the devil, is our partner. We wish he weren't. We would like to be a little more aware of his wiles, but Satan, the devil, is a partner in the sins of every human being. And God knows that, and he is a great archdemon that has incredible power. Now, Satan the devil will always try to attack you in your most vulnerable spot. Of course, you would do that if you were waging a war and you thought that you were trying to vanquish an enemy. You would try to find out where is his weakest spot, where is the line the thinnest, where does he have no troops, uh, where is he not garrisoned, and, and you would try through every means in waging modern war to do that. You would try to attack his sources of supplies, communication and transportation, etc., the way real armies do, and you would try to infiltrate he would try to put spies and deal in espionage and sabotage behind his line. Satan the devil does that. He tries to infiltrate the church. He tries to infiltrate your mind and your thoughts. He tries to whisper into your thoughts and your mind. He has all of the world's entertainment going for him. He's got all world communication going for him. He's got all the world's churches going for him. He's got all the governments of the world going for him. He's got all of Hollywood and, and all the movies and the TV specials and the kiddie cartoons and everything else, all the rock music. Satan the devil's got it all. He is the author of it. He orchestrates it. He pulls the strings. He is influencing the people who produce this kind of garbage. And 99% of the time, you and I are subjected to an ever-continuing barrage of Satan's message from all these sources in the world, from other people around us, and sometimes our own beloved family members, from every form of entertainment, every form of communication, and not only that, but from spiritual sources that sometimes, I think, if we could see, it would stand our hair on end. Now, I'm coming to a very important point. I'm not going to belabor this or beat it over the head, but I want you to understand it. When we sin... God the Father, like a loving parent, sees it in a different way than did the Pharisee see the publican. Jesus Christ gave the beautiful analogy of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee said, I thank God that I'm not as other men, like that publican over there. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
and he felt so holy and so righteous, but his righteousness was seen in comparison to a person whom he judged, and he judged that person falsely. The publican knew what he was. He went before God, smote himself on the breast, and said, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so Jesus Christ said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So hear me and hear me very clearly. There are many human beings in positions, and I will, I could talk about anything from the highest up in Roman Catholic Church to the Anglican Church to the Church of uh, the Greek Orthodox to any other church you want to talk about. Uh, I think some of the most intolerant are some of those in the Bible Belt in the United States of America that are Church of Christ and Baptists and so on, some of the most intolerant people you will ever meet that are quicker to look down their spiritual noses and just judge other people live in those parts of the world. But look at Islam. Look at this sixth duty of Islam that I've talked about time and again of how they say that all of the world of Islam is a world of peace. And it is the duty of every person who believes in Islam, which means submission, to bring all of the infidels, meaning unbelievers, under this huge blanket of peace. And don't the Arab nations have peace? Aren't they all in peace over there? There's peace in Lebanon, there's peace in Syria, and peace in Iraq and Iran, and peace in Afghanistan, and there's peace over there in Egypt. And they're all at peace in the Sudan and so on. Well, anyway. So, jihad, holy war. Now, there's a concept for you all by itself. The very term, jihad, holy war, murdering men, women, and children in the name of God. That's why I've written about that so much in World Watch and in a newspaper talking about this incredible concept. But isn't it unbelievable at how it has found its way into the so-called professing Christian religion in the process of people judging, condemning, and criticizing one another? Now, God the Father is like a loving parent. If you, as a loving parent, discovered that your young teenage daughter had fallen in with some very influential other girls, and she went and got her a tattoo on her ankle, and she put a ring in her navel, maybe even in her tongue. They're doing that today. They're back into body piercing. These teenagers have a subculture going. All the boys are running around wearing little earrings, like little, little pansies of some kind. It's unbelievable. But anyway, subculture. Nothing is new, by the way. Let me just interject this. When I was in the Navy... In 1948, I dated a girl in Escondido, California, who was trying to talk me into having an earring put in my ear, and a couple, three of the guys in my barracks at Miramar before I went aboard ship were actually wearing them, but they were wearing these big half-moon deals that looked like the proverbial pirate on the pirate ship. And that was in 1948. And these kids think this is new? There's nothing new under the sun. It's just cyclical. What goes around comes around. It just comes back years later. Well, thankfully, I did not go with a needle and thread in the cork, and that's the way she was going to do it, jam a needle through my ear into a cork and pull the thread through and tie it and, and then uh, pull it again and not let it uh, uh, heal over, but to keep it open, and some of the guys did it. I didn't. I'm very glad I didn't. I didn't want to go around wearing an earring then, and I was in the Navy and just as carnal as any other human being, but at least I had enough sense not to do that. I wish I'd had enough sense not to get tattooed, but I didn't have that kind of sense. How would a loving parent feel toward such a daughter if she were introduced to drugs and all that goes with it? Would they say, why, you little devil, I, I hate you, get out of my home, I never want to see you again. Well, unfortunately, some parents make that mistake. Some parents do exactly that. And they come down hard on a child that has had a lot of other powerful influences around them. But a loving parent, a forgiving parent, like God the Father, will see that this child had a partner in sin and that this child was subjected to powerful forces. Is there anything more powerful when we're in our awkward teenage state or we're growing up and, you know, we got the zits on our face and we wipe them off the mirror and all that ob obnoxious stuff as teenagers when we so desperately want to conform. We so desperately want to be in. We want to be a part of the gang. I did, you did, everybody does. It just is human nature. If parents understand that, then they can come to understand that this child had some powerful influences 
and that this child is responsible up to a point. And beyond that point, there was this whole big world out here and all these other influences and all the music and the, all the, the, uh, the art and literature and the motion pictures and the magazines and all the stories that are told and the tremendous powerful uh, pull of teenage subculture that caused them to get into that situation. And the parent will forgive them and have empathy toward them and understanding by remembering the way it was when they were that age. Now, God the Father is like that. God the Father, when we commit a sin, when we stumble, when we fall back, as we say, in the peaks and valleys of this spiritual life of warring against the world, Satan, the devil, and our own personal human nature, understands that sometimes we slip up. Sometimes we let down on prayer. Sometimes we go a week or so with nothing but sleepy time, Betty by prayers, spoken in real haste in three to five minutes and climb into bed exhausted. And we don't take the time that we should to labor with God in prayer to be an overcomer. And then we become susceptible. And like the army that has a weak flank and the enemy that outflanks the army and finds that most vulnerable spot, Satan the devil will always strike at you in your most vulnerable moment. It reminds me of a lot of the Western movies. You may have seen them even in England or in Australia. And I'm sure Western movies in the United States have made their way all around the world, even to Japan. Invariably, when the Indians are running around on their horses and the wagons are circled, somebody will turn like a woman a lot of times and just pick up a child or something and go whack. She turns her back. She stands up. She sees something, the child is running out there and going to get hurt. She runs out to grab the child and co-whack an arrow comes just twang right into her back. How many times has Hollywood shown us that scene? Hundreds of times over the decades. Well, there is my point. If you are unprotected, if you are, as the Apostle Paul said, that we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. If we become ignorant of Satan's devices, that Satan is using this thing or that person or this movie or that book or something else to uh, try to probe a weak spot here. If we become ignorant of that and we stand up all of a sudden, co-whack, there's one of Satan's darts right in our back. And he has gotten a thought, he's gotten a, a desire or something into our mind that if we let it take root and we don't get rid of it right then and there and deflect it by the shield that God gives us against those darts of Satan the devil, that it will injure us very, very badly. Turn to Isaiah the 14th chapter and verse 12. Satan the devil figures very prominently in the entire prehistory and then the history of all of mankind and up to and through the millennium and the great white throne judgment and the final great act of God of the new heavens and the new earth was Satan banished in the darkness of blackness forever. And Satan the devil is there from the prehistory beginning and he is there at the very end of the next stage of the plan of God. For anyone to say that that Azazel goat is not a symbol of Satan the devil who remains alive to whom are uh, like wandering stars, to whom are reserved the blackness of darkness forever, is blasphemous beyond belief. And I'm telling you that on the authority of the Word of God and in the name of Jesus Christ, that that Azazel is a symbol of Satan the devil. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, which did cut... Uh, how are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? We don't really focus in on that. Satan the devil has done exactly that. He certainly has done so to the United States of America right now, even as I speak. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Here was the first sycophantic interloper. Here was the first gold bricker. There are other rather unpleasant names used in the service for this type of person. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven... I will exalt my throne above the stars, meaning the angels of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, showing that he was here below the heights of the clouds on this earth, and that this was the place that God had given him to govern and to rule, and that it was like a vast garden of Eden, as far as you can see, nothing but absolute perfection and beauty. I will be like the Most High... Now, I could comment on that, but this is a part of Satan's very makeup. He was jealous. He was seething inside with his jealousy against his boss. 
He was seething with desire to be, to replace the boss. He wanted his job. He wanted his office. He wanted his glory and splendor. He wanted his throne. He wanted his power. He wanted the ability to order angels everywhere and to have it all. He had one-third of them. He was like one part of a triumvite of a great archangel. He is called the cherub that covereth. He had a fantastic future for all eternity. Another thought. Who created him? Who made him? Who put him where he was? God the Father. God put him there. Just interesting thoughts in passing. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Hades, to the sides of the pit. Now it blends back into the other type, which is, in this case, the king of Babylon. They that look upon you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake the kingdoms? And that may have something to do with the fate of the beast that is actually thrown into Gehenna fire over into the valley of Hinnom by Jesus Christ personally, as you see in the last half of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. Let's go to Ezekiel 28 and look at the parallel account. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus says the Eternal, Thou sealest up the sun. Now from this point on, it's talking about Satan the devil, or Lucifer. Before he fell, he was called Lucifer, which meant light bringer, or bright shining star of the dawn. You sealest up the sun, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, could not be said of any human being. You have been in Eden, the garden of God, could not have been said of any living human being at all. Every precious stone, they're all listed, diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, jasper, gold, and workmanship, your tabrets and your pipes, it does say in the original settings and sockets, was prepared in thee from the day that you were created. You think of the mythological pan, the rough half goat and half man with the little flute in his uh, hands who is cavorting across the landscape. And perhaps because everybody knows that pan, meaning all, everywhere, everything, is a symbol of Satan the devil. And it's interesting that he's half man, half goat, isn't it? And it's interesting, too, that Satan the devil is behind nearly all the music in the world. Oh, I'm sure that men of God that have been divinely inspired, like David, for example, and Solomon, the Song of Solomon, my, old, my uncle Dwight, who died several years ago, uh, different men at different times can write inspiring and inspired music. But a lot of music is absolutely of the devil. And certainly some of the music that has come out of Africa with the different kinds of beats and so on that we find in what they call heavy metal and all that today are absolutely satanic. And they're even going to the point where the words themselves are satanic and where they are urging everything from dismemberment, murder, killing policemen, etc. I won't go into that, but it is absolutely awful. And it is satanic. You were the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in thee. Lawlessness is the exact synonym for iniquity, meaning sin, the breaking of God's law. It had to start with vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. It started with a little thought. The thought became a big thought. That thought began to dominate his thoughts. And eventually he decided, what I need is a constituency. I need these other angels to agree with me. Did it take him a thousand years? A billion years? Who knows? But eventually, Lucifer was successful in so heavily influencing every one of the angels that were under him, before whom originally he had shown loyalty to God, before whom originally he had shown fealty and awe and admiration and worship. He had been a bright, shining angel. But somehow he began to pervert them, and they began to follow him in that perversion. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Now, that expression is unfortunate. That's an old King James expression. It really means by the amount of your trafficking, of your going about, in calumny as a merchant of lies. It really does. It means as a calumniator, the multitude of your trafficking, like a traveling salesman, but he was trafficking in ideas, and he was going around continually just prating. I've seen that happen in organizations. I've seen that happen in the military. You've always heard that uh, 
there are people who will gripe about the sergeant, and the sergeant gripes about the major, and the major gripes about the general, and the general gripes about the commander-in-chief. Well, it's that way right through every corporate structure, every major business and corporation in the United States or other countries, because that simply is the way it is. People are after other people's jobs. They want to pull the rug out from under him, stab him in the back. They want to talk, 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 and get other people to agree with them. So for all these many, many years, Satan the devil continually did that. By the multitude of your merchandise, that is, by the amount of your trafficking in lies, you have been, really, the midst of thee has been filled with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you from the midst of the stones of fire. O covering cherub is there, too. Destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He is removed from there, but the fate that is going to occur to Satan the devil, who is a spirit being, and God is not going, he could if he wanted to, but he does not say that he will, because the very thing that Satan the devil has foisted upon many millions of people, that is the lie of the immortality of the soul and an ever-burning hell, which is the most obnoxious, horrible, hideous, torturous thing you can begin to imagine, is actually going to happen to Satan the devil himself. To whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever as wandering stars? Can you imagine Satan the devil alive with his memories, alone with his knowledge, this brilliant but twisted perverted mind with every rotten sin in which he participated by the hundreds of millions among human beings and not even a little pinprick of light a billion light years away to relieve the Stygian blackness where you could open your eyes, nothing but black that he sees in all directions. That apparently is Satan's fate according to the Bible. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. That's why God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, it is a great curse today for a young girl to be truly beautiful. It is so rare when you see a beautiful or an extremely handsome person that is not filled with vanity, and it wrecks their lives. This poor little girl that was murdered, they still haven't gotten to the bottom of that. They don't know uh, who did it. Uh, I have my own ideas, but that's not for me to voice in any forum, in manner, shape, or form. But I can't prove it, and until it is proven, I will not voice them. But nevertheless, here was this Jean Bonnet Ramsey. And they, I, I absolutely disagree with that. I abhor that, of trying to make a little sex symbol and a little dancer and so out of a tiny little girl putting lipstick on her, dressing her up like she's some kind of a dance hall girl at that tender little age. That little child was brutally murdered. But there are many others that from the time of their youth, their mothers put them in this situation and it wrecks their lives. I'll tell you, it doesn't make any difference the way your skin is stretched over your face. It's what is going on in here and in your heart, as we say, your character that makes you beautiful and not the way the lips and the teeth and the, the nose and the ears and the eyes and all of that are put together over the, the skull, the skeletal framework that makes us what we are. I think in today's society, my wife and I have talked about that, we, we just think that, that young girls growing up would be far better off to be just average and to let the young man who comes to love them later on and proposes marriage discover all the beauty that is there in the character as well as a, a pleasant-looking girl, but not to have a beauty that would be utterly spoiled by vanity. And Satan the devil was corrupted by reason of his brightness. His wisdom was corrupted by reason of his brightness. His heart was lifted up because of his beauty. And so he became completely perverted. Satan the devil, in Revelation 12 and verse 9, is called a great dragon, like a serpentine form of a being with great bat-like wings and a hideous, ugly uh, mouth like a crocodile with huge fangs and so on. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out under the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And sometimes he falsely accuses them, and sometimes he's right. But the point is, he's accusing them instead of forgiving them. And God is forgiving them when they pray to him in forgiveness and in repentance, and Satan the devil accuses nevertheless.
And he keeps at it day and night, day and night, day and night. He's up there accusing the brethren. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, not on their own strength, not on their own goodness, not on any deeds that they can present before God, but because of the sacrifice of Christ. And by the word of their testimony. Now, what is testimony? Well, it's what you give in, let's say, a deposition. It is your day in court. It is your account of the facts, of the way things happen. Does that make any difference to God? Oh, yes, it does. God is just as interested as anyone else in what are the motives, what does the person really want. There are people that have all kinds of problems, from, from horrible thoughts to horrible activities, things that habits. I mean, pity the poor drug addict that goes back to it, the poor smoker who can't seem to break the habit, uh, a person that has been on even over-the-counter drugs that has a terrible problem with that. What about an alcoholic that is told if you take one more drink, it's going to kill you, that he goes to AA for six months and then slips back because it is a chemical thing that's gotten a hold of his body. According to some people, the way they look down their noses and, and judge other people, someone that ever commits the same sin in the same genre, the same generic kind of a sin, more than once, is doomed to Gehenna fire. Not so in God's Word. So he says that it is the accuser of the brethren who is cast down, but they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and love not their lives unto the death. Even if it takes martyrdom, they're going to stick with the word of God, the truth of God, the work of God. They're going to stick with their repentance and their belief in the forgiveness and the mercy of God Almighty. He is called in Greek Abaddon, Apollyon. He is called in the Bible the tempter, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, 2, the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he's called a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He is called the devil. He is called Satan. And he was a partner in every sin you and I have committed. And this day depicts what is going to happen to him. Turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter, where we see the very same symbol or typology as we saw in Leviticus 16. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. This is the fit man that is to lead the Azazel into the wilderness. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up that he should, that, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be finished, and then he must be loosed after that for a little season." So for 1,000 years in the millennium, Satan the devil will not be here with all of his society. It'll be God's society, and our great-grandchildren great will be growing up, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, in the kingdom of God, and not in this rotten world around us here today. At that final day, when Jesus Christ of Nazareth has come and stood on this earth, and that is depicted by the festival of trumpets, right after that time there is to be an atonement made for all of the world. Satan, the next great act then, after Christ comes to this earth, is to be taken away from it. And that's what the feast, or the day, not a feast, the absence of a feast, of atonement depicts. Then in only five short days, things begin to happen very rapidly, as I said in the sermon, in the sermon on the Day of Trumpets. Ten days, then five days, then of course immediately tacked on to the last of the Feast of Tabernacles. Things begin to happen very, very rapidly in God's plan. And the millennial reign of Christ will begin, and it will be complete peace with no Satan the devil around. Now we're going to be at one then, isn't it? As I near the end of this message to you, isn't it? something to contemplate, that all of the world, whether Islamic, Jew, Gentile, Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, it doesn't matter, are eventually going to be at one. Africans, Asians, Americans, Germans, British, Australians, all at one with God. Wouldn't it be sad if the very last groups, which have to be dragged, as it were, kicking and screaming, to come up and hug one another and to reconcile with one another would be some of the groups that used to be together in one wonderful church organization, but which have split off in all kinds of directions, and there's a great gulf fixed, and never the twain shall meet. Wouldn't that be quite a commentary? If Almighty God has to see that the very last people who will reconcile and be at one 
would be the ones he would have to virtually drag there kicking and screaming? No, 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 no. I think the point is that if there is that spirit, if there is that attitude in the hearts and minds of some who will not reconcile, I believe they're not going to be there. That's my belief. They will not be there unless they are more than willing to be at one now. How can you suppose they are going to be at one then? Well, I'll quit with that. As you can see, I'm here in my study. My son Mark is right behind the camera there, and my wife is in the other room. And it's been nice to be with you on this Day of Atonement. I'm doing this in advance for those of you all around the world who will not have a minister there for services during this day. And sometimes there will only be two, three, four, five people there watching this videotape when it comes to you to be ready for you to play on the Day of Atonement. I hope you have a very wonderful Day of Atonement, and I hope you go out and have a good dinner tonight and enjoy the camaraderie and fellowship of God's people, and hope you have a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles. I'll be bringing you a couple more of these kinds of sermons for those of you in scattered areas for the first day and the last great day, so you can have a sermon for those two holy days during the Feast of Tabernacles. Until then, God bless you all.